What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 615 with my guest, Britt Frank. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Uh, The website for this show and the social media handles are uh, MentalPod. What was I going to say? Oh, it's so beautiful out right now. I'm recording on a Thursday afternoon, and it's one of those California days where the high temperature is like 70 degrees, and uh, and it's so sunny. And even though I know when 4 o'clock rolls around, uh, I'm going to have to lay down because the world feels like too much. When I wake up, I feel refreshed. I feel ready to, to take on the world, or at least to uh, brush my teeth. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I got an email from um, a listener named Kate, and and this is not an endorsement for this uh, company. I don't know much about it, but um, it's called Cost Plus Drugs, and she raves about the money that, that she is saving on it. Uh, so much cheaper, I guess, than other pharmacies. So maybe go check it out. Those of you that are having trouble affording medications uh be interested to know what your feedback and again i have no uh horse in this in this race i just uh love to pass along any information if people uh have ways for us to get uh to get help and feel better um i also want to give a shout out for um Comedy Gives Back. We had Zoe Friedman on as a guest, and it's a charity that she helps run. And as you know, a lot of comedians are fucking nuts, and a lot of them uh, can't afford mental health services, or maybe they're trying to get clean from drugs and alcohol, and it it helps uh, provide them the help they need. And you can support it very simply by texting the word LAUGH to 707070. Again, text the word LAUGH to 707070, and those are the numbers, 707070. Um, it means a lot to the, to the comedy community. Much appreciated. Uh, this is from the Love Survey, and this is filled out by a person who calls themselves Self No Self. And they write, I love the moment when I come home from my lunch break to be with my dog. The moment I get in the house, I yell out for Eddie, who I call Wawa. 
short for Chihuahua. And I pretend that I have no idea where he is, saying, where's my Wawa? Where did he go? I know he's in my bed, burrowed under the covers, soaking up the last moments of warmth. As I get to my bedroom, he pokes his tiny, sweet face out from under the covers, tail wagging, waiting for me to come to him. I get close to his face to kiss his head and tell him, I didn't know where you were. You've been right here all along, and I didn't even know. Of course, in the highest octave, my voice will go. He'll rub up against me, gliding his face along mine. I then stand up and say, all right, let's go potty. He then darts out of the bed and sprints to the backyard. I love that he'll never greet me at the door when I first come home, but instead waits for me to come find him and play our little game together. My God, that might be one of my favorite loves ever. How is the rest of the show going to follow that? That I, you know what? I would like a picture of Wawa if you can send that uh, to me through the website. This is from a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself, why is this the hardest part of the survey? And describing his anxiety, he writes, a clothes dryer filled with ball bearings inside your head. It never stops. And you're pretty sure you're the one who filled it up and started it, but you don't have any idea how or why. My God, that is such a good one. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, filled out by Michael J. Cocksucker. I think we're all familiar with his work. Uh, He asks, what is your hockey jersey number and why did you choose it? Number four, because Bobby Orr is my hero. This is from the Fears survey, filled out by Jake, uh, who identifies as agender. And they write, I realized two days ago that an experience I had a few years ago was sexual assault. I'm a multiple-time suicide survivor and have been through DBT, talk therapy, and lots of different meds to work through my trauma and figure out how manic anxiety pushed me to the edge. After all of this time and grief and struggle to recover and understand my trauma and myself, I am so, so afraid that this new understanding of my assault will be much deeper and more painful than I feel right now. I feel like how I felt immediately after a suicide attempt, numb, heavy, out of my body, nearly incapable of speaking. I am so tired of working through trauma and feeling these feelings. I know I am incredibly resilient and will come out of this pain with a deeper understanding and love for myself, but I am scared to let myself feel the pain, fear, and sadness that I know is under the numbness. I am frightened this might be a final breaking point in my strength and persistence to heal and be happy. I am frightened to accept the truth of what was done to me because I know it comes with a lifetime of work. I am scared that if I do accept it and start working through it, my life will be consumed by healing, never allowing me to move on to living. Thank you for that. And, uh, you know, I would just say as somebody who who has worked through trauma, um, it it does get easier as you go. But yes, sometimes there is that initial kind of, you know, dipping into the lava and thinking, I can't do this. I can't do this. This is so p- fucking painful. And it usually comes with the feeling of having no trust and your integrity or sense of where truth is. It's just a feeling of being 
um, untethered, but, um, you know, you say my life will be consumed by healing. Uh, I assume you mean the work involved in healing because healing's fucking awesome. But, um, I understand what you're, you're saying. And, uh, you sound like a brave motherfucker to me. And I want to give you a high five for not running from the monster anymore, turning around and facing it. This is an awful moment uh, filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as Crash. And they write, 2021 was a rough year. My marriage was crumbling. I was in an outpatient mental health treatment program for a variety of reasons. I was newly diagnosed as bipolar 2. I was, and still am, have an identity crisis. So when the holidays came around, I wasn't happy, and neither was my wife. I was still getting used to my new meds, so I was still extremely low. As gifts, my wife and uh, I received edibles in the form of cookies and a little Reese's peanut butter cup on top from my family. It's legal in my state. So we get home. I was feeling numb, not happy, and wanted an escape, so I ate a whole edible, as did my wife. This was bad for many reasons. I had never consumed any form of marijuana, ever, in my entire entire 30 years of life. There was 129 grams of cannabis, and then parentheses, THC, question mark, I don't know, in it, and I didn't read the packaging or take the wonderful advice of my family to eat half or a quarter of it. My wife has partaken in cannabis before and handled it well. Me, on the other hand, oh boy. At first, it was nice. Warm, floaty. The best I felt in months. That didn't last long. Then, my face started to feel crackly and cold. That made me anxious. So I had some water, breathed deeply, and went to relax next to my wife. Time started to feel fast. That made me panicked. So I started to check my heart rate, as I do when I feel anxious or panicky. It felt like it was going 90 beats per minute, then 120, then 300, 600, 900, and I started freaking the hell out. I was begging my wife to call an ambulance, and I felt like I was going to die. She tried to calm me down, but nothing was working. So she went to get her stethoscope, she's a vet tech, and checked my heart rate. I hope she also expressed your anal glands. All the while... I felt like life was speeding around me. Uh, She told me it was at 65 BPM. I was like, what? She checked it again. Same thing. And that helped ground me a bit. So she pulled me next to her and held me while I tripped balls. I saw so many colors when my eyes were closed. And whenever she would feel me tense up, she would check my heart again and it would ground me. And eventually, I decided to just trust her that I was okay. So as I tripped balls, I'd open my eyes to see Bob Bert, Bob's Burgers on TV. I'd swear four episodes would pass, but it would be 10 minutes into an episode. Uh, was weird experiencing life in four times the speed, but also regular time. At some time during this, I looked up at my wife and thought, She's the absolute best human being in the world. Despite our marriage crumbling, her trust in me shattered because of an affair I had with someone on the internet. She held me tight during my extremely tough high. And in that moment, I realized how stupid I've acted, how horribly I've treated her. She deserved absolute nothing but happiness, and I let her down. 
I couldn't imagine how tough the year was. Dealing with the info of the affair, seeing my mental state crumble, uh, trigger warning, for, they say, uh, trigger warning for this next part, self-harm mentioned. Despite her seeing my self-harm scars, even going so far as to clean them up, disinfecting them and bandage them up. Despite all this, she held me tight in a moment of horror for me. After I finally came down, I apologized for what had just happened. I held her tighter than I have in months and just said, I love you. I went to bed and the next day reflected on everything. And that was the day slash week I started actively doing my part to fix the relationship. We're about to get into counseling. We're in a decent space and can happily be around each other. We have a long way to go, but the future is bright. Thank you, weed cookie. (laughs) Thank you for that. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp has been a sponsor for this podcast, and I've been a client of BetterHelp uh, for, God, probably six years. And uh, this week they're focusing and talking about solutions instead of problems. I think one of the things with catastrophizers like myself is we spend so much energy looking into the crystal ball of doom and imagining all the things that could go wrong instead of saying, hey, what are some tools I can utilize here? Maybe just a phone call to run some ideas past people, get some perspective on it. Therapy helps me a lot. Support groups help me a lot. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and entirely online. Get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and switch therapists at any time. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash mental today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash mental. And make sure you include the mental part so they know you came from the podcast. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Pie Thief. And she writes, I love baking at this time of year. I made my first successful pumpkin cheesecake and made a pumpkin pie with a remaining canned pumpkin. 
I had an ongoing dispute with the neighbor living above me since March. I'm not able to move out and don't want to engage with her at all. She vandalized my windows in June, and I cleaned it up without saying anything about it. Well, because of my ADHD, I tend to forget important things. I forgot to lock the door last night. The next morning, I woke up, and all my freshly made pumpkin pie was gone, except for one slice. So I've come to suspect she broke in and stole the pie. There were other tells of a break-in, and I felt violated, but then I thought... Well, I'm flattered my pie was so good that it was worthy of theft. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Marlon's like, we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. But the places you feel most broken now. You just gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about (laughs) making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Uh, you're in the right place. I'm here with Britt Frank, who is an author, an educator, a clinician, um, and oh, I know I'm missing one other thing. Um, hot, disastrous mess of a human. <laughs> Britt, Britt has a really important book out called The Science of Stuck, and um, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you about it because I love when I have a guest who can connect the science to the cuckoo. (laughs) There's a lot of both. (laughs) Yes. Um, Before we get to that, let's talk about you and what kind of brought you to the realm of, of therapy. And let's talk about your hot mess. The mental mess. So I grew up in what looked like a healthy, normal family, but as most things beneath the surface was just a shit show of dysfunction and chaos and abuse and enmeshment and all kinds of fuckery. Mm -hmm. And so out of that, I became a hot mess and made some interesting life choices that Mm -hmm. I don't regret, but wouldn't repeat. And, you know, basically it came down. I joined a religious fundamentalist cult for a while. I thought that would work. Why not? Right not. You don't have to feel feelings. Just think this, say this, do this, wear this, you're good. That didn't work. And then after a while, it was, you know, heal or die, which is so dramatic and not everyone needs that experience. It was mine. And so I had the very great privilege of being able to choose to heal and to have access to resources to do it. Uh, If you're comfortable, give us some vignettes from childhood that kind of uh, exemplify the uh, the trauma. I was addicted to porn when I was seven, so that that was a thing. Where where do you think that? Uh, what triggered that? Well, the word boundary was a very foreign word. In fact, I remember when I learned about boundaries, I was so excited. I'm like, "Hey, family, now we can heal. This is what we've been missing." And they were like, "Boundaries, never yeah. heard of her." And 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 not interested in her. Not so much. No, we yeah. don't like her. She is not welcome here. So very rigid, closed system. Very boundaryless behavior way too much exposure to sexual materials and sexual behaviors early on. And then from there, you know, why porn at seven? Because 
Coke and meth weren't available to me. It was sort of, yes, exactly. What's available? I can watch the Spice Channel and I can Mm -hmm. sort of look through the rabbit ears at this, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff on the screen. And that's where it all started. Uh, So give me some some more vignettes of um, how you began to view yourself in the world, the the kind of the inner life of, of you from being a kid until you discovered meth. All of the things. And, and, and the things <laughs> that would tempor- temporarily quiet the troops. Sure. Well, you know, severe mental illness runs in my family as far on both sides. And we didn't talk about mental illness and therapy wasn't normalized. And the only feelings that were allowed were happiness and we're, we're New York Jews. So anger is fine. Happy is fine. But that's it. You get to be angry or you get to be happy. And so I really had no grid for what was happening inside my head other than I must be crazy. And the number one question I hear from clients now that I practice is, am I crazy? And it's like, there's no fucking such thing as a crazy person. Everything makes sense in context. Mm-hmm. We just don't always know what the context is. Right. So it was a long journey of figuring out, oh, hey, Britt, you have trauma. I was 27. A therapist was like, hey, you have trauma. I'm like, I don't know what that means. No, I don't. I had, you know, I was never in a war. I was never assaulted. Well, at that time, I wasn't. Um, and so I didn't understand that trauma is a part of the human experience. And we all have it. And if you don't deal with it, to whatever degree you have it, mm-hmm. things are not going to go well. Talk about the body, the importance of understanding and listening to the body and and the journey of connecting to your body when for an assault survivor, it's a crime scene that you sure as fuck don't want to visit and think about. Well, I didn't want to live in my body. I didn't want to know from my body. And I didn't even really know I had one until I figured out how to do this kind of trauma therapy as a client. And it's like one of the biggest myths of mental health is that it's in your mind. It's all in your head. Just think your way out of your depression and just think your way out. It's like you can't do that because you have a nervous system. And a nervous system that has been traumatized to whatever degree is going to look a lot like mental illness. And again, there's no shame in having a mental illness. I take psych meds. I always have. I always will. They're awesome. Awesome. But often the things that we are quick to call illness, our body's doing what they're designed to do, which is in the crime scene, get you out. So dissociation, if things are really hostile, a depressed nervous system is going to have all the feelings turned off other than, you know, mm-hmm. the I want to die ones. It's very, you know, it's not good, but it's functional. And so the first thing I do with clients is, hey, thank your symptoms because they kept you alive as evidenced by the fact that we're talking. Let's find a different way. But mental illness symptoms and mental health symptoms are our body's best efforts to protect us. What effort does dread play? You know, you talked about happiness and anger. And, you know, before I, you know, began to recover and do therapy and unlock trauma and all that stuff, my three primary emotions were, you know, elation, usually had to be under the influence of something or getting some kind of adrenaline rush, Um, anger. And especially dread. Can you talk about dread? Sure. And for me, I had those two. And shame was kind of the thing that oh, was yeah, the Oh, yeah. I forgot that. All the shame all day, yeah. every day. So the dread thing, you know, often we what we think is our dread of the future is our body trying to cue us. Hey, the thing that you think you're afraid of in the future has already fucking happened to you. Like you have been traumatized. You have been to a large degree terrorized. Even if it looked normal to a child, what looks normal to an adult might be awful. And then that's not even getting into things like 
like sexual abuse and physical assault and all of that. But dread is a very adaptive evolutionary way of keeping us alive in the face of a threat. And our brains haven't changed all that much. They're still designed to keep us alive in the face of a threat. And I don't remember who said this, but it was like, I thought I was depressed for no reason. And then I looked at the reasons. It's like, we have reasons to be, it was a comedian and I wish I knew who she was. She's awesome. Um, We have reasons. Our pain, all of our pain makes sense. All of our symptoms make sense. And it's helpful to know that. So pick up then where I went off the the path with asking you about dread. Yeah. Um, So you were were talking about uh, the body telling us things, um, happiness and anger being kind of – and shame. Mm -hmm. Um, What next? So what next for me after sort of banging my head around life for a little bit was the religious experience, a very fundamentalist religious cult. Not all cults are Westboro Baptists. They're not all sex cults. They're not all murder cults, but a cult is a cult and it's not good. But it was very comforting to have a very rigid set of rules. You don't have to feel feelings. If you're sad, it's just pray it away. If you're feeling upset, just if you're angry, pray it away. It's like, I don't have to deal with anything. So And, And everything has a quick, simple answer. Always. A pithy instagrammable put it on a coffee mug you know kind of situation and pain and trauma those were words that were not uttered other than in the context of if you have it it's because it's your fault so you should probably pray about that there was a uh, meme going around after katrina that showed uh, you know people up to their necks in water and and the caption was um maybe we should pray more. I saw that too. And my blood raged with, oh my God. And it's like, I'm not anti-spirituality, but like true spirituality makes you less of an asshole. Yes. Not more. If you're an asshole, that's not spirituality. Right. The the judging people has no realm in true spirituality. None. And I've read the Bible because I was in the Bible cult for a while. And like Jesus basically said, and forgive me all Christians, but you can sum up the whole thing by don't be a dick. Yeah. Like, that's it. Love it. Don't be a dick. Yeah. We miss that. But so what my, you know, people ask, how'd you get out of cult life? And sex and love addiction will take you out of cult life. Throw in some methamphetamine. And that's a big recipe for a very accelerated ride to the end of the line, at least for me. Um, talk about the the sex and love addiction. And how did that play a part in you exiting the cult? You fell in love with somebody? Mm-hmm. Okay. Lots of somebody's. Anybody, somebody come, daddy, daddy, save me. Some, or mommy, mommy, save me. Anybody that would save me, please. But those people generally require a lot of sexual favors for that type of rescue dynamic. And so if that's what I needed to do, that's what I did. I'm not proud of it, but it makes sense to me now. Would it be fair to say that their instincts were predatory and you didn't realize you were prey? Or is that simplifying? Yes, and. There's always a big and. I'm not into victim blaming. I don't think it was my fault. You know, as a sexual assault survivor, I didn't, nor would I say to anyone else, like, well, you put yourself in that situation. You were high on meth. What did you expect? It's like, did I deserve it? No. Was I asking for it? No. Um was I aware that I was prey? And I'm only going to speak for myself. I will not speak for all the survivors. For me, there was always a part of me that knew this is the price you pay to not have to deal with your shit. And even though it so wasn't. So that was pretty instinctive that you knew that even pre therapy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, wow. I, I can't cry. I didn't know. And I was just. And that's true for some people. And I would love to claim that, but it's not true for me. 
I always had a piece of me that knew I was making a Faustian bargain and it wasn't a good look, but it was functional until it wasn't. Yeah. Talk about the role of sweet, sweet meth. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, I love meth. Um, yeah. Anyway. You've been sober for a while. Though, I have not smoked meth. meth in many, many, many years. Yes. But people who don't use drugs don't understand that before they destroy you, they're going to feel really freaking good. Oh, yeah. And so meth was the – I mean, I don't think I ever even felt a dopamine rush until then. You know, I was – pills and lots of downers but like the first time i smoked meth i'm like i am awesome this is how i want to feel everything that my br i'm so smart i'm so wise i'm so powerful it was really fun you don't feel dread no dread no none except when it wears off and then the shadow people come after you but if you're high you don't feel the dread and then it was you know well i need to do really bad things to get it and so rather than being fun it was i'm smoking meth to survive the things that i'm doing to get it which wasn't functional. Mm. So are, are you comfortable sharing some of the things yeah. that you... We're here. We're in it. So like, yeah. it's important for me to be open about it and not be like, here's my clinical case study. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. But it's like, I live this from the inside out. So, you know, I've sold my body for drugs and I was assaulted and I was passed around and all the things that are in that world. Like, I would love to be like, nope, didn't do that. But like, yeah, mm -hmm. sure did it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And I know you do, you don't want to feel like I'm patronizing you or saying you know poor poor victim. But you know, I feel like I I, I want to say that whenever I hear that that somebody went through that because it it um, it sucks. It sucks. It sucked. I want to, I mean, not want to, I have hugged that version of myself and hosed her down and given her like a blanket and a snack. And it's like, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Younger part of me. Such an important part of recovery yeah. and so fucking hard. So hard. Talk about how, how that played out for you. Yeah. Well, you know, the 12 steps when I worked them, the fourth step is here's all your shit. And it was, you know, for that to not be an exercise in shame. Like I tell people, there's a reason owning your stuff doesn't come till step four, because if you try to own your behavior with a shame dump on it, you're not going to survive that or you're going to cause more harm. So it became a, I need to understand that my psyche is not just this one fucked up thing, but it's this infinite collection of parts and subparts. And I can extend compassion without co-signing on the behavior. And that was revolutionary. I'm like, oh wait, I can love on these parts of myself, but not be like, and you know, just do whatever the hell you want. It wasn't your fault that you, you know, robbed somebody to, exactly. to score meth. Exactly. Yes. It's like you can take ownership without beating yourself mercilessly. It, it is so hard. I think especially in our culture where there's very little nuance, at least in the public realm, about two disparate ideas being true at the same time. Which is bananas to me because that's the crux of recovery is the ability, not just recovery from drugs, and, and anything. Life? Yes. It's how you human. Yes. Like how do you human? The way to human is to be able to hold simultaneous realities all at the same time without one being truthier than the other. Right. It's like, yes, you're awesome and you're a piece of shit and you're beautiful and you're ugly and you're wonderful and you're an asshole. All, like all true. Yeah. Cool. Great. <laughs> so... um what what were some of the ways that you began, you, you know, you talked about the fourth step and owning your shit, but also having compassion and, and, and seeing that you were a human being who didn't have the tools at the time. You were doing the best that you could. Um, how how did, did you feel a difference in your 
body, in your psyche? What what did it feel like? A lot of people, when they do that, I'll speak for myself, I remember leaving uh, the apartment that, uh, you, you know, I, who I'd done this with, gone, you know, read this stuff to him, and the doorway felt bigger. Wow. I felt lighter. I mm-hmm. felt like something had been released mm-hmm. from me. And it, I was like, wow, this shit really, there's something to it. Yeah. So talk about for you, how you began, uh, to, to feel a difference and what were the next phases of you beginning to be aware of that part of yourself that needed love? I wish I had a very like neat, clean burning bush experience. And I know that's true for some people, which is awesome. It wasn't like, here's my bottom. And now I climb out of my rock. It was very much fits and starts. It was, I was clean and sober for a while, but you know, I was addicted to so many things. It was easy for me to sort of like rationalize. Well, I'm not doing this, but I've got that. The whack-a-mole as we call it. Big time whack-a-mole. And so it came in little truth blurts. It was, I would confess something super, super, deep and heavy and I would feel that release and then I'd go back in and be you know unconscious and just fuck around a while and then I would kind of weave in and out of recovery I sort of was recovery adjacent for a while (laughs) because I didn't want to deal with the really really gross stuff you know just like that yeah like I did this for that and that's a the only thing worse than dealing with your truth is avoiding it and so that was really when I was done and then the therapy that I found the most helpful was internal family systems Dr. Richard Schwartz which is like the multiplicity of your psyche that's why part of you knows don't smoke meth don't prostitute yourself for meth and the other part of you is sure where can I sign up Talk about um, the the family system and what that means, mm-hmm. the importance of understanding that. Yeah. And the internal family systems model is so comforting, especially if you don't have an awesome actual family system, like the humans in your life, when you realize that you're never really alone in your head, but you have all of these amazing parts of yourself, creative parts and inspired parts. And even the ones we think are bad always have some sort of gifts, you know, like grit and perseverance and innovation generally come from the unsavory parts of ourselves mm-hmm. when they're just channeled and parented properly. But it was so exciting to realize what I thought made me crazy was actually my psyche and learning how to befriend all the voices, even the scary ones. It's not like I feel like in control, but it makes sense now. Like when I hear like those, what we call in the mental health world, intrusive thoughts. And again, Mm. I get that they're scary and I get that they're very damaging if they're acted out, but they actually make sense. So now Mm. when I have a really dark thought, like, hello, hi, is there something you need me to know? And there's Mm. lots of practices about communicating with these parts of yourself. It, it was a game changer for me when I decided to treat the intrusive thoughts in my brain like a fun animation festival I got a free ticket to. I was like, oh, look at that. I haven't heard it put like that, but yes. I When I was in the depths of just despair facing the childhood sexual stuff that I, that I went through that had to, had to do with my mom – one of the ways that I comforted myself, and this was a fantasy that was really kind of contained to like a two, three year period, was imagining tricking my mom into giving me a hand job. And I would be chuckling, going, this is what my brain needs mm-hmm. right now and having compassion for myself. And I'd been in a support group for a while 
to be able to, you know, kind of go, hey, this is where you're at right now. Let's not judge. I'm not hurting anybody. This might not be the ideal tool, (laughs) pardon the pun, to deal with this. But I think it's important to talk about the stuff that is hard to talk about, the ways Mm. that we cope that, you know, I cringe when I when I talk about that to some degree. And I also feel pride in myself for owning that part of my brain and being able to say, this is not a moral failing of me. This is how my body was coping. And what people, and I appreciate you sharing that. So since we've opened the incest box, I'll just hashtag me too. And what people who survive incest don't realize is that everyone who survived incest is going to have some really fucked up sexual fantasies. And like you said, oh, hi, I love the animation version. It's Mm -hmm. like like Pixar's Inside Out for adults. Like this is what our voices say. And yeah, like you should go have sex with your father and you should be thinking about that and try to recreate that. And it can... You're talking about the voice in your head, not actually going into it. Right, right, right. The voice in your head saying that would be a really good idea. Like, you should try to do that. And it's like, oh, hi. I call them little bees. Hi, little bee. Welcome to the party. Pull up a seat. Let's get you a snack, too. Because we don't have to fear even those really, really scary thoughts if we understand that, yeah, people who have had bad things happen to them, their parts of their personality are going to want to replicate that. And do you find and does science bear out the fact that compassion and acceptance of these helps in in recovery, finding peace, calm, what, what, whatever? In what ways does this help us as we instead of trying to fight it? So I work with a lot of very high functioning, very successful people, and they get all pissy when I talk about self-compassion. Like that's woo-woo, mushy, saccharine, toothless nonsense. I'm like, okay, well, here's the science in simple like terms. If you're beating the shit out of yourself, you're going to release cortisol. All the stress hormones are going to flood your body. And what happens to a body that's flooded with stress hormones? It does stupid shit. So like more of the Things you don't want are going to happen when you beat yourself up. Self-compassion reduces the stress hormone flood, which turns your logic switch back on. It's like stress hormones, bad. Not as many stress hormones, good. Self-compassion, not as many stress hormones. So just from an efficiency, like energy conservation point of view, self-compassion is like neurologically a better way to get where you want to go. If beating ourselves up worked, it would have worked. So is it, would it be fair to say then that um, when we're shaming ourselves, we're kind of re-entering that play that we're familiar with from childhood? This is the role that I, that is familiar to me, so I'm going to act this out, and lo and behold, you get a lot of the same results. And the fuckery with that process, and you're right, is that we then become addicted to our own stress hormones. Gabor Mate talks about this. So like we conjure up these fantasies of how much we suck because of our trauma, and now we've got this loop, this narrative in our head that creates all those stress hormones, but then we become addicted to them. And detoxing off of shame is actually really unpleasant because you have to tolerate boredom and you have to tolerate sort of existential nothingness. You know, I'd like at least when I'm feeling like a piece of shit, I'm feeling something. Right. And it's familiar. And it's, it's the so stinky familiar. blanket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the, the, the stuff that's in your book. And you've touched on it a bit. Uh, as I mentioned, the name of your book is The Science of Stuck. Let's let's talk about stuck 
stuck. So the reason it's called the science of stuck and not the science of trauma or the science of mental health is because for whatever reason, this binary of the mentally ill and the mentally well is bullshit. It's like it's a spectrum. We all fall somewhere on it, but no one has it perfect. So, you know, everyone has trauma to a degree. Everyone has fear, anger, pain, shame, guilt, and all the things we don't like to mm -hmm. a degree. And everyone knows what it's like to get stuck. It's like, we know what to do. Don't do the drugs. It's like lack of information isn't really the issue. It's we get stuck. And like you said, it's not a moral failing. There's science. Our nervous systems are habituated to these patterns. And if you don't know that, you're going to blame yourself. And then off we go. And then we stay stuck. Talk about physically what's what's happening in the brain when our central nervous you know, when we get activated by something that, that scares us, is it, what is it called? The amygdala mm -hmm. that, so that kind of takes over and that's the, you know, the guy in the bush, uh, you know, running from the woolly mammoth. I don't even know if they existed <laughs> at the same time. Um, and by, by, how, how do we move from that to the frontal lobe where mm -hmm. our executive function gets to, you know, join the game and go, whoa, 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 hold on a second. So if there was a tiger sitting right next to you right now, I would not be able to speak. Like, there's a reason your mouth goes dry and your voice doesn't work when you're terrified. Your digestion goes offline, which is why all manners of GI distress happen when you're stressed. If there's a tiger right there, it's really easy to see and it's really easy to understand why I'm shaking and sweating and not able to talk. But the problem that people get into is, well, I, clearly there's not a problem. It must be me because there's no tiger here. It's like, you may not see the tiger, but like your body's not doing this for no reason nothing comes from nowhere so a better question to ask than why am i feeling like this is what's the lion in the room it might be fear of failure it might be fear of intimacy it might be fear of abandonment doesn't matter just pick one assume start with the assumption that your brain's all freaked out because of the lion your amygdala is going yo stop or hey go or like check out and do bad things and then we can find them like we can't solve a problem if we're not willing to start with this is how your brain works mm -hmm. people push on this all the time there's no lion this is stupid i'm like great but like your amygdala isn't logical that's yes. why it's in the back and did you find the fourth step helpful in understanding what the central nervous triggers are and the behaviors associated with them and if so talk about that so i didn't learn about all the sciencey stuff till later in my recovery process right. but in thinking of it it's really the fifth step where that magic happens because mm. my fourth step i had stacks and stacks of the that chart and the worksheets and like here's all my resentments here's all my stuff but it was when i looked at another human and said like my really really bad stuff and she looked me back and said and i still love you it was like holy shit i didn't know that that was called co-regulation and that was like a neurological process but the mm -hmm. fifth step is magic the intimacy mm -hmm. yeah um talk about the importance of understanding um the f the ways that we filter reality that trigger our central nervous system um in particular um fears and i i hate the word character defects because it sounds so kind of blaming but uh, a term that i prefer is uh tools that aren't ideal 
I love that because that separates the behavior from the person. Right. Right. We all have part, all of the parts of ourselves are good. Their behaviors can be really bad, no doubt. But all of our parts are good. So to say I am defective, I am fundamentally broken is just, in my opinion, and the opinion of lots of people, just not accurate. It's like, can we separate our behavior from our essence? And that really is where recovery becomes possible because you can't de shame it if it's just who you are. Like, sorry, you're just broken, right? You're just crazy. Nothing to do about it there. But if I know, hey, there are these suboptimal behaviors because they adapted to trauma, then we can get in there and work with them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try to imagine, you know, the the ways that I coped before I began to understand what the fuck was going on is just a sledgehammer. You know, that was my sole tool. You know, oh, we need to uh, unscrew this nut. Let's, let's see how mm-hmm. the sledgehammer works. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, for me, you know, getting sober was huge, but the 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 place where it really, really uh, began to get deep was going to a support group for mm-hmm. intimacy, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, an intimate intimacy disorder. In in my opinion, you need scalpels, lasers, you know, electron microscopes. Uh, Brit, Brit is shaking her head. So I'm nodding um, very vigorously. Yeah, uh, talk about that if you if you would. Uh, tools and what tools are good for um, all of the emotions that we try to say this shouldn't be happening. The number one tool for anything, whatever the thing is, is just start validating. It doesn't mean you're okay with it. It doesn't mean you agree with it. But like, let's just assume it makes sense and we can move from there. Like, fuck if I know why I'm dating the same person over and over. Fuck if I know why this is, okay, we're not going to know why right now. Let's just assume it makes sense. And then let's shift over to, and this is a really like practical strategy. What are your choices right now? Your brain feels unsafe because there's a tiger. Cool. I don't know why. It just does. It makes sense. Fine. What makes you feel safer? Who makes you feel safer? Like, how does that person make your nervous system feel? Like my first sponsor in Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, I didn't know this at the time, but she made my nervous system feel less like frazzled. I felt more grounded. It was easier to tolerate the very, very uncomfortable physical sensations that I was feeling. Um, So really asking who, what, where, and when do I feel safe or safer or at least a little bit less shitty? That's a good starting place. And does that kind of apply to all of the uh, emotions that, uh, you know, are historical in terms of our central nervous system? I think so. Because really, if we're talking about mental wellness, it's not a question of sane or insane or strong or weak. That's a bunch of horseshit. It's, you know, a brain that feels safe might not be magically cured. Like I said, I have mental illness on both sides of my family. I can do all the trauma healing work in the world and my brain's still going to be a little off. But a brain that feels safe is not going to produce the same intensity of symptoms. And you're going to feel a lot less spinny and a lot less stuck if we focus on safety rather than what do I need to do to be better and reach more and slay the day and whatever. It's like, what makes you feel safer? I uh, had some really powerful sessions doing uh, somatic experiencing. And uh, Britt is... uh, High-fiving the air. High-fiving the air. Uh, And the thing that kind of surprised me about it was the importance on the therapist stressing that I was safe in that in that moment. And I didn't realize until it happened that that was the doorway for 
the little kid who couldn't speak when he was 10 years old. And it was like I was 10 years old in one particular session where I was crying out for help and somebody to come protect me. And she just kept saying, you're here, Mm -hmm. you're safe. You're here, you're safe. And it felt so good. Mm -hmm. And it was such a profound experience. Somatic experiencing is incredible. I'm trained in it. It is. And I had the same experience as you. Wait, I'm safe? You mean that it's not happening to me right now? Because we live in that state of it's happening right now all day, every day. Thus addiction. Do you remember some of the things that you said or you experienced? And if you're comfortable Mm -hmm. sharing those, describe in in as much detail as you remember those sessions that were powerful. There was the you are not crazy session and it was the I'm ugly crying and I'm snotting because I'm finally realizing what I thought was an idyllic childhood was like incredibly not. Um, You know, a lot of sexual abuse isn't violent for children and their bodies respond. So they think I must have wanted this because, you know, X, Y and Z happen when you're molested. So fine. And she just put her hand on my shoulder in a non-sexual way because everything up until that point had some sort of sexual overtone or undertone. Mm -hmm. She just put her hand on my shoulder in a maternal way and just said, Britt. You are not crazy. Like, that's why I stress this so hard in my work. She's like, this makes sense. And that was really a linchpin moment. Like, what do you mean this makes sense? Oh, I'm not crazy. Like, I'm not crazy. Like, that's the most validating thing anyone had said to me up until that point. And how did you respond physically and emotionally in that in that moment, if you recall? I do. I remember where I was standing, too. So in the somatic work, they talk about discharging stored stress, and that shows up as tears or shaking or sweating or belching. Kids will fart when you do trauma work with them, which mm-hmm. is cool. And I basically started, like, convulsing and was like, what is happening to me? But it's like it's it's coming up it's coming out we're getting it loose and that was really one of the first times i experienced my body i'm like mm-hmm. oh hi here you are like hey this is where i live like i get to come home now and really like the whole i think human experience is this like journey to come home someplace to feel at home mm-hmm. to feel safe to feel welcome to feel loved and if we're traumatized it becomes impossible to go in and do that and I love that the healing work, you know, I remember doing the inner child work and at another place and telling my younger self, like, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And it made me cry. And like, you know, just that moment of it really wasn't her fault. Did you have you ever talked to a, a picture of yourself from the mm-hmm. age? Yeah. Talk yeah. about that. And again, people think the inner child process is sacri- – a lot of people, not everyone, yes. is woo-woo and whatever. But again, it's really powerful, and there's, like, neuroscience to back it up. I've done the chair work talking to the picture. I used to keep a little picture of myself in my car. I would just drive around with it. Mm-hmm. I don't have kids. So it's like I don't know how to parent a child, but I would put her in the back seat and be like, hey, are you hungry? I had eating disorders, so I didn't eat for a few years. So, like, even just checking in with that little picture of me in the little pigtails, being like, hey, do you need a snack? Do you need a nap? You know, and hungry angry lonely tired but like i walked around with p- little pictures of me i have a shelf in my house with all those pictures in a box and do you, rem- do you remember the f- um, did i cut you off do you remember the first time you talked to the picture of yourself what did that feel like um if if you recall anything first time i think that was when i was at the meadows which is a treatment facility in arizona um where like that's the mothership for all this work um i remember looking at her and feeling absolute disgust Like I wanted, like when people look at themselves in pictures and cringe, it was just Mm -hmm. like, I want nothing to do with like disgust and shame and get that 
get that shit out of my face. I don't want to look at her. I don't want to know her. And a very skilled therapist was like, look again, look again. And I'm like, fuck, fuck. And then the ice melted. And I'm like, she's innocent. Like, she's innocent. Like adults do shitty things, but all kids are innocent until we fuck them up. And what do you remember the reasons why you were disgusted? So with the sexual trauma, you know, one of the fastest ways to feel less victim-y is to blame yourself. If it's my fault, then Mm -hmm. I'm not a victim. Like nothing bad happened to me. I just wanted it and asked for it and was seductive at seven, at eight, whatever. Um, So the disgust was really this like internalized shame of my abuser. And at the Meadows, they actually have you do an exercise where you write a letter and you give back the shame. So it's like, no, I'm not carrying the dislike. That's not my disgust for myself. That's the disgust that the perpetrator had. Mm-hmm. Not mine to carry. Like RSVP, no return to sender. Fuck off. Right. So that's when that started to shift. How does a, a, a place like the Meadows deal with people who then became perpetrators? I don't know. I know there are places that deal specifically with sexual offenders. I don't know if they do. It's a great mm, question. Yeah. Um, it's tricky with this, you know, and I've worked with people who have um, perpetrated on children who've committed date rape. And it's it's really, you know, I found for me it was actually easier to work with offenders than with children because like, and people would say, how could you work with this person after what they did and what you've been through? I'm like, well, if they get better, the world's going to be less unsafe so like that's good if they stop being a shit about this thing yeah so i find a lot of value in doing that kind of treatment and and you know society it's it's so black and white how we deal with stuff that we really don't want to look at the the reality of and to say we're not going to execute this person they're not going to be in jail forever you know, what are we going to, how can society benefit from it without us going draconian and, you know, medieval on on people? Not that they shouldn't, you know, have their consequences and if they are unrepentant, fucking keep them in jail for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. But how do we, how did you deal with uh, offenders when you were working with them in therapy? Were you able to go, Oh, this person's a fucking straight up psychopath who is irredeemable. Did talk about the the breadth of experience sure. that you had. And I know I just threw nine questions. That's okay. At you. I'm trying to pick which one I want to answer. So I've worked with people from the spectrum of I was an offender and I'm still human enough to recognize how bad my behavior was. And yes, I'm with you. Like accountability, go to jail, go to jail for a while, don't be around kids, have all of the boundaries. But like you said, it's rational self interest to make them well versus to punish them in a draconian way that will only amplify their aggression and amplify their tendency to cause harm. People on the very extreme sociopathic psychopathic like irredeemable i've worked with those people too and it's scary like the nature of evil i i used to be like ah, i don't know and like nope i've seen it and it's real would I, you feel it in your body yeah talk about that yeah um the, the kind of trauma makes you sort of a super sensor i think yeah. after it's kind of a superpower so there's just this like 
very, very, and again, people think that psychopaths and sociopaths would create like an ick response, but they don't. It's the opposite. Charm. Charm. They are the most hypnotic, like magnetic, alluring, like you, you find yourself sort of drawn towards their tractor beam. And now I know enough about what that is to understand. No, that's not attraction. That's like danger, danger, danger. There's a different quality when you're attracted to someone because like they're cool and you like them. And when they are basically hypnotizing you and casting their like a spell on you and how do you find the difference is it what they're saying versus the the facts and the you know the disconnect there not always and again i've worked with some really intelligent charming self-aware sociopathic people who can identify and this uh, this abuse happened at two which caused this behavior at eight which led to me doing this thing at 12 and here i am and they don't really feel the need to change. That's why anyone who's worried that they're psycho isn't because like people right. who are don't care. They know they are and they don't give a fuck. Right. Um, but like... So why would... Uh, why would they come to therapy? Exactly. Because it's really fun to banter and toss ideas around and you get to have all of the attention on you. Like, mm. you know. So they're not really vested in changing. They just want to talk about themselves. Mm -hmm. Which again, like... Anywhere you can open even a crack in the change window uh, is worth doing. You worth know? a shot. It's worth a shot. You know, it's like fine. Um, but I can always feel it in my body, regardless of what they're saying. There, there's an energy that happens. And anyone who's ever fallen for someone that isn't good for them knows this feeling. It's like you can feel it in your body. It's like a pull from behind your midsection. And when I feel that, I'm like, oh, shit, that's what's going on in this room. Well, crap. Okay. And the really self-aware ones, we talk about it. And that's really interesting, too, to see it from the inside. One of the things um, that I watch frequently on YouTube is interrogations of people who've done terrible things who clearly have no conscience. And one of the first things they immediately do is they'll talk about how everything is affecting them mm -hmm. with like no regard. It, it's not even on their radar what mm -hmm. somebody, the victim, might have experienced. And the other thing I notice is when they recount their crimes, there's a smirk. A glee. A glee. Mm -hmm. It's like bone chilling. So uh, chilling. Yeah. Yeah. I don't make a habit of work. And generally those people, like the people I'm talking about aren't committing crimes. They're like CEOs <laughs> right. that are like running companies and are not like killing people. But there is a bone chilling way that those people have about them. So like, what's the nature of evil? Is that person just so enmeshed with their protective system that there's no hope? for? I don't freaking know. I just know what it feels like in my body to be around it. And it is bone chilling. Talk about the the different areas of stuck that that we can be in all right let's pull this all the way back up okay out yes. of sociopathic evil okay so people generally get stuck in you know the areas of intimacy that's a biggie Fe feeling purposeful feeling like life has any and you don't have to not everyone needs to like follow their passion and make money doing what they love but we need to have purpose somewhere and a lot of people feel like no purpose disconnected from themselves and other people sometimes it's a financial thing sometimes it's they've gotten all the things and they still feel like shit and then it's okay well i have the girl and i have the money and i have all of this stuff what's wrong with me it's like okay well we've got some some shadow work we got to connect the dots but generally it's finances career relationships sex um and really coming to terms with uh, the reality of our family no one had a good childhood and people hate that I'm like that's binary 
like it's real. Do you remember how hard it was being a kid? Like you're dependent on everyone. You have no power. You have no freedom. You have no mobility. Being a kid inherently is a type of trauma. So to say I had a good childhood ignores that reality. And, and one of the things I try uh, to remember and to and to say when when people are having a, a tough time giving weight to things that happened to them as child as children is you were two and a half feet tall. And the person who was raising their voice was six feet tall. So imagine you today and the person is eight feet tall. Right. We think about our childhood from the lens of our adult self, not the lens. And that's why I did play therapy in my, the beginning of my career. Like, I don't understand how kids see things and I want to. And it's like, they're terrified a lot of the time. And people are like, well, my mom didn't mean it. And she was doing, I'm like, I'm sure she was a lovely lady. And I'm sure she was doing her best. Cool. It doesn't change the impact. Like, I may not have meant to hit you with my car, but like, that does not unbreak your leg. Right. Yeah. Uh, I like to say it doesn't matter what envelope the trauma arrives in. <laughs> I like that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, anything else you'd like to uh, share before we wrap up? Well, we delved into all the things. Like my, my main thing with my work, with the book, with everything I do is you make sense. Like, and it's not like you're not broken. So like take the meds, do the ther- do whatever you need to do. But like you make sense. Your parts are awesome and you're not broken. Frank, thank you so much for coming on. What are some of the social media links that people can find you at? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Brit Frank or my website, scienceofstuck.com. And uh, your book is called Science of Stuck, and we'll put a link to that as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Britt. Is she awesome or what? I love I love when a guest comes on and is like, I don't have to pull anything out of them. They're just an open book. And I don't know, I think those are the best and, and the most helpful episodes for people. At least at least for me, those those conversations are, I feel. I'm just reminded like, oh, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Let's dive into some surveys. This is... Oh, we're really diving in. We're going shame and secrets right out of the gate. Are you sitting down? This is filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Too Many Guinea Pigs. She identifies as straight. She's in her 20s. Says she was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was in the ninth grade, my boyfriend would finger me at the movies right next to someone else, even if I didn't say yes or no. Now, in public, I hate all PDA, especially if it's semi-sexual. 
She's been emotionally abused. She's not sure if she's been physically abused. She writes, I was married at 19 to a guy who threatened to kill himself if I ever left. Boy, that is definitely emotional abuse. We lived with his parents who would threaten to kill my parents or bash my face in and would get upset when I didn't scream back. Wow. As far as physical abuse, I was never hit. But when he was angry, he would punch things as hard as he could. We would have sex for hours, and I would never finish. By the end, I was a sore, hurting mess, and he would cuddle up to me and fall asleep. I also was told to clean his used condom off of him. Wow, that is so fucking good that you are out of that marriage. Uh, Any positive experiences? He stood up for me all the time. If someone said anything to me negative, he was there to defend me, which made me feel strong. You know, my (laughs) my first thought when I read that was, that's where I think narcissists can appear like they're having a moment of non-narcissism, but really it's about, and, and I could be wrong, them looking at you as a piece of their property that was insulted. Uh, what are your darkest thoughts? When I was with him, I wanted to commit suicide because it was easier than being yelled at and not being able to talk to my parents. Darkest secrets. Sometimes when my boyfriend and I are having sex, I fake it or only get him off because I think about my ex being mad at me if I didn't finish, which I never did and always faked. Fantasy is most powerful to you. I like to be held down, hair pulled, all the aggressive stuff. Sharing that makes me feel like my ex screwed me up more than I thought. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would tell my abuser that him sitting down to pee, literally every time he did, doesn't make me feel like the woman in the relationship. Even worse, it was sick that his mom taught him that way. What, if anything, do you wish for? For him to become a good person. I don't want him back, but I don't want him to hurt anyone else. Have you shared these things with others? No, I don't share. It's too hard for my loved ones to hear, and they would want to keep an eye on me 24-7. Well, what about sharing it with some support group people or a therapist, somebody who's not going to go codependent on you? Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? Semi-crazy, but it feels good knowing you will believe me. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I promise you, getting out of abuse is the best thing you will ever do for yourself. Then, cut your hair off and get a guinea pig. It's like meditation, but with squeaks. (laughs) Thank you for that. Did not expect that ending. Uh, This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Chris from Canada. And about his depression, he writes, One of my grade 8 students came up to me at the end of the class and asked if I was okay. I can't even fool a 13-year-old into thinking I'm mentally healthy. Wow, that one really hit me. And, And what a testament to how hard it is, I think for some of us, to hide the depression in our face. When I was doing uh, dinner in a movie, between takes, it it was like, uh, you know, the, the most common note that I got from the director was, smile, smile, <laughs> you look unhappy. More energy in your face. And as soon as they would yell cut, my face would drop because I was so fucking depressed. 
This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself, I wonder if I'll click submit this time. And then a smiley face. Uh, he identifies as straight. He's in his 30s. Uh, says that he was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? He writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I would say it absolutely counts. Uh, he writes, I remember multiple occasions where my stepmom would tell me how important it is to not wear clothes at night. This happened whenever we were alone, and I would eventually comply. She would also want to check me for puberty at least once a month, with the excuse that she wanted to make sure I was developing properly. I'm not sure how I feel about it since I got along with her better than I did with any of my parents. She was also the only one that went out of her way to be friendly slash nice towards me. Needless to say, this makes for complicated thoughts and feelings on it. He has been emotionally abused. Um, he writes, My dad constantly put me down for being bad at everything and untrustworthy. I was always blamed for anything that went wrong if I was there. For example, I was grounded for not putting the groceries away alphabetically, which had never been mentioned before. And the following week, grounded for alphabetizing the pantry. They uh, also had a mom who uh, played the martyr quite often and a raging stepdad. Uh, about the stepdad, he writes, if he wasn't upset when I was walking on eggshells or doing, if he wasn't, oh, then I was walking on eggshells or doing busy work chores. He was of the opinion that idle hands were the devil's tools. So I would split wood from the age of 10 and then move piles of wood from one side of the yard to the other with, puni with punishments of more chores if I didn't stack the wood fast enough or perfectly enough. Turns out there is a wrong way to stack firewood. He also didn't think it was a good idea to have friends, so I wasn't allowed to visit friends or have them over. My sister took advantage of my status as the scapegoat and would instigate situations that would get me into trouble. When I asked her why she was constantly setting me up, she answered, because you are alive or some variant. I don't hold ill will towards any of them, but I don't go out of my way to interact with them either. I also actively go out of my way to avoid interacting with my dad, who still thinks I do nothing of worth. My sister and I have made up, and after she was in an abusive relationship with her, her ex-husband, she express, expressed remorse for the things she did when we were kids. Any positive experiences with abusers? The first time I defeated my dad at a board game was the first time I was able to have him acknowledge one of my accomplishments. I still have a love of games, but I don't use them to set my self-worth. My stepdad taught me basic woodcraft skills, and I still enjoy starting a fire whenever possible. What are your dark, uh, darkest thoughts? When I was a kid, I would think about faking my death, like in Tom Sawyer slash Huck Finn, to see if anybody would miss me. Now my darkest thought slash fear is that I will live forever and never know what it's like to be loved by someone, to know what it's like to enjoy life. Darkest secrets. I didn't realize this until recently, but I'd been somewhat suicidal for most of my youth. I was frequently taking unnecessary risks, such as using a splitting axe at 10 years old while in flip-flops, starting fights with dangerous people if I felt 
I was outnumbered enough, or when I was in the military, I would ignore safety protocol and take risks like wandering around when a mortar attack was happening. Hell, I was confident I would be dead by 20 and became just as sure that I would never die after I turned 21. It's kind of funny to me because I've had hypervigilance and intense survival instincts that always tempered my risks. I remember all the bruises on my feet and legs from the splitting mall succeeding in splitting the log and then come flying towards my feet or shins. At the last second, I would rotate the handle and hit myself with the flat of the axe. Wow. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have an interest in most fantasies from being forced by a strong woman to crazy orgies, furries, and futas. Uh, But the strongest fantasy is the cuddling afterwards when I can think I'm embracing someone who loves me. It makes me feel a bit sad sharing that. Then again, I might be in a low part of a depression cycle. I get depressed every spring and summer. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone? you haven't been able to. Why the hell would you exclude a child from visitation weekends? I remember being four years old and sitting at the toy steering wheel while my mom tried to explain why my sister got to see dad and I couldn't. Wow. I'm sure he would deny it ever happened. Both of my parents tell me I am remembering things incorrectly, even though I have second level memories of asking my mom about it when I was around eight years old. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could bring myself to talk about this stuff without hiding behind anonymity. I hope that for you too, buddy. Have you shared these things with others? Bits and pieces. Usually things are met with disbelief. Nobody would let a 10-year-old split wood by themselves. I also tend to talk about my past in the form of humorous anecdotes. People that haven't experienced trauma tend to tell me I'm bringing them down, which I find baffling. Gallo's humor is funny, though that might just be for the people in the situation. Ha ha ha. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel better, but I also think my depression might be worse than I thought, which does tend to happen. I'll see if I can work up the courage to try the BetterHelp website. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experience? Try to find the humor in the bad times. It seems to make the bad memories neutral or less terrible if I can remember the smiles and chuckles that are now attached to them. Thank you for filling that out, buddy. And I really do hope that uh, that you begin opening up to people. Um, and if you don't have any friends, um, you know, I'm a huge, huge fan of, of uh, support groups in conjunction with uh with therapy but you know there's for me there's a I get something different from both of them uh you know from therapy I get a a professional perspective and a certain type of expertise and from um support groups I get like an emotional bonding and um a a sense of community and and comradeship This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Trauma Queen. She identifies as gay. She is in her 20s. Um, She says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, when I was 15, I had a crush on a girl. She told me she liked me but wanted me to also date her boyfriend, who she said was 18. Thus began the grooming process. We talked on the phone for weeks. 
he would reveal more and more about himself. I learned he was actually 25. Honestly, he was probably even older. He would get in my head and manipulate me. A lot of my mental landscape was shaped by this. He would use the girl I had a crush on to procure a harem of young girls. He would pit me and this girl against each other. I ended up meeting him and he raped me multiple times. Six years ago, I went to an underwear-themed party and got blackout drunk. When I came to, a group of men were having sex with my unconscious body. My partner at the time was there and did not intervene. I am so, so sorry that this, you know, that even one of these things happened to you, but just this incident after incident. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that baffles me and, and really depresses me about humanity is like, I can wrap my head around the idea that there are perpetrators scattered around, but when I hear about just a group of people who are randomly thrown together, joining in on something like that, it, it, it is hard to feel good about humanity when you, I mean, is it, are they all psychopaths? Is it? Are some of them, is, is it peer pressure? What exactly is it? But that, that just, uh, how there isn't one person stepping forward and saying, what the fuck are you doing? You know, especially her, her partner. But again, it's not up to them to... You know, the the responsibility doesn't lie with them. It, it's, oh, I feel like I'm on a soapbox now. I'm going to shut up. Uh, she's also been emotionally abused. My first experiences with sex and love were extremely abusive and manipulative. My first girlfriend was a manipulative liar. Every man I was involved with was verbally abusive. My mom is an alcoholic and would get drunk and verbally berate me for years. Any positive experiences with abusers? My mom and I are extremely close, close, and she is no longer abusive and is basically sober. I've forgiven her. Other than that, my first girlfriend I remember positively for the intense awakening I experienced. It doesn't complicate it for me because I'm entitled to positive memories about realizing my sexuality. Darkest thoughts. I have a complex that I'm lying about things that have happened to me. Uh, I think it comes from being accused of lying for years. I also did used to lie a lot as a high school kid just for the heck of it. I did that into my early 20s. I think it helped me feel in control and not get close to people and also maybe allowed me to diminish my trauma. I'm also afraid I'll be exposed as a liar. I'm worried I'm overstating my own trauma and that I'm a drama queen. I also worry I'm a sociopath who can't love anymore. You know, I, I think the fact that you worry that you're a sociopath means you're probably not a sociopath. Uh, darkest secrets. I used to do sex work and I would constantly put myself uh, in unsafe situations on purpose as a form of self-harm. I've been assaulted countless times as an escort. It made me feel real. 
I miss the danger highs, even though the job was disgusting to me. I feel like I self-sabotage my current normal life because I think I don't deserve safety. I live in fear of my coworkers finding porn I was in. I think about my rapes constantly and fear I'll never be healed. Uh, it affects me more than I let on. I feel like a shell of a human being. I have suicidal ideation, but don't tell my loved ones. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you. I honestly can't even have sexual fantasies about myself. I hate my body. I just imagine sexy women, specifically women receiving anal penetration. I'm fixated on anal sex. I think stemming from being anally raped at 15. However, it's also a common thing that people like, so who knows? I can only orgasm with my girlfriend and feeling very relaxed or thinking about women receiving anal. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my family I was raped. My sister knows and has also been assaulted. I feel like it would explain a lot of things to them. What, if anything, do you wish for? Uh, that one's blank. Have you shared these things with others? I have. People usually cry and say sorry. I hate it. My girlfriend is also a survivor, and we bond over that. It's very special to me. How do you feel after writing these things down? stronger than I thought I was. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? To gay women survivors, you are not gay because you were raped. Being raped does not negate your gayness. Having used sex with men as self-harm does not negate your gayness. Being raped at a young age when you're figuring out your sexuality is confusing. I was figuring shit out and that was preyed on by a predator. Thank you for that. Thank you for, for going so deep. And uh, I know some of the stuff I read on these surveys may be hard um, for, for people to hear. Um, but um, I don't know. I, I, feel, I feel like there aren't many places where you can um, truly hear uncensored uh the uncensored inner and outer lives of, uh, of people. This is from the love survey, uh, filled out by Lisa. And she writes, I love my mother, even though we argue about stupid things. She's always there for me and wants nothing but the best for me. I love when my pet ferrets excitingly run towards me, then plop down with their heads resting on my foot. I love when I pick them up while they're napping and they wake up, notice it's me, and fall back asleep, snuggling in closer. I even love it when they swat my face away when I give them too many kisses, as if they're a teenager acting annoyed, but secretly loving the affection from their mom. I had no idea that ferrets were, uh, were affectionate. Uh, I love my paintings and drawings, even though I compare myself to other artists. It feels like my art is not good enough, but I try to remind myself that a lot of artists are their own worst critics, and I should be proud of my creations. I love swimming and pretending I'm a beautiful mermaid, and I'm learning to love myself more. It's a struggle, but it's worth it. Oh, those are awesome. Thank you for that. I... Uh, I put a little thing together with uh, with some music that I want to uh, I want to read some of the struggle in the sentences that people have written 
over the years about OCD. I must breathe to the rhythm of this song stuck in my head or it'll kill me, even though the hyperventilation will probably kill me anyway. If I can make the rules, the world might become a safe place. If the last thing I say to you is not I love you, you will surely die. It's like I can't bake a cake unless I'm watching it get baked. I fucking hate myself for not cleaning everything today. If I imagine falling down the stairs and getting compound fractures all over my body just one more time, I'll be free. I believe it all. I sleep on the floor now because everything else, bed, couch, chairs, have proved to be unlucky. OCD is a monster attacking what I love most in life over and over. There is no reprieve. What would happen if I drove into a house? I don't want to do this disturbing thing that I would have to live with the rest of my life, but what if I did? My fingers bleed, my gums bleed, my ass bleeds, but nothing is ever clean enough. It's like my life depends on placing marbles in a perfect grid on a floor that's uneven. If my radio volume on my car isn't an even number, I'm going to feel weird for the rest of this drive. The end of the world starts with a food stain on my shirt. If I don't think about the bad things, then the bad things will attack my friends. Like energy in my hands that won't let me be still. A balloon full of red paint has burst. It's everywhere and only I can see it. It's like being handcuffed to the worst person I've met. I don't, I don't know if enjoyed would be the right words, but I hope that resonated with some of you who, who uh, battle OCD and feel like uh, it's got you in a headlock. Uh, and let's end on some lightness. Let's end with some loves. This is filled out by somebody who calls themselves the Riddle of Revenge, and they write, I love the way music can transform your heart in ways no other art form can. I love the way a fresh can of sparkling water fizzes up your nose when you take the first sip. That is an awesome one. I love my partner whose patience and tenderness has shown me how worth loving I am. I love my cat. He's afraid of every new experience just like me. I love my dogs. I love that they aren't afraid to demand my attention and affection when they need it. I love my siblings. We're so lucky to have each other. Without them, we wouldn't know what it even means to be a part of a family. I am so proud of their hearts and dreams. I love my car. It takes me anywhere I long to go for a very long time that wasn't available to me. I love movies, TVs, and books for transporting me into another world, for helping me maintain my imagination into adulthood. I love it when I see an older couple holding hands. Oh, that's a great one. I love waking up a minute before my alarm, completely refreshed for the day. I love getting stoned and listening to music and drawing. I love finding an amazing new restaurant. I love the relief felt after a big cry I didn't know I had building in me. I love it when I'm moved to tears by someone's story. I love going on a long fall hike. I love it. I love it when... At just the moment I can't take the climb up the mountain anymore, 
I'm gifted with the most gorgeous mountain views. I love myself, sincerely, honestly, and totally. That's been the most freeing. Now, those are awesome. Thank you for those. Well, I hope uh, I hope you got something out of this. Am, am, is that pressure on you? Am I being codependent? Am I the codependent uh, podcast host? You know what I'm going to say? Hey, maybe you didn't like that. That's okay. You're on your own journey. You're on your own path. Maybe that path involves listening to my podcast and going, ugh. But then again, why would you be at the 83-minute mark waiting for it to get better? Maybe you're an extremely patient person that has a very picky taste in podcasts. I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up and go figure these things out, and I'll let you know uh, my findings next week. Uh, just never forget, you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.